Hello and welcome to this episode of Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast for the Shakespeare and Music Study Group. My name is Michelle Asai, and I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, composer, director, playwright, and all-round Renaissance person, Claire Van Campen. Claire originally trained at the Royal College of Music in London. She subsequently developed an international career as composer and performer. From the opening of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in 1997, she was the founding director of Theatre Music and then senior research fellow, creating both period and contemporary music for more than 100 of the Globe's productions and directing many of these productions on tours around the world. She has continued to create original scores for international theatre, film and TV, including Wolf Hall for the BBC. As a playwright, her first play, Farinelli and the King, was nominated for multiple Olivia and Tony Awards, including Best Play. Among many current and future projects, Claire is directing her own film, It Never Entered My Mind. And as a regular broadcaster and lecturer on Renaissance music and theatre, Claire was awarded an honorary doctorate of music by Brunel University in 2018. And some of you listening may remember her wonderful keynote address at the first Shakespeare Music Conference in December 2020. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction as well. <laughs> well, it's the all-round Renaissance person is the right thing. Both well, <laughs> or jack of all trades and master of none. You can also... <laughs> that's, that's modest. That's very modest, typically, for you. So let's go back to your years of education. How did the love for early music come about? Well, this is interesting, actually, because... Um, when I was 12, I went to the Cambridge Music Society because my cousin, who was eight years older than me, was uh, at university in Cambridge and he was taking maths, but he was a very um, keen cellist and actually went on to be a very well-known cellist. But at that time, a lot of things were happening in, in the music world. So we're talking about 1965 or something like that. And David Munro, was at this particular concert. And also, I don't know if you know this person, David Atherton was at that concert and David Atherton started the London Sinfonietta to produce contemporary music and David Monroe went on to develop early music. So I feel I was at a kind of watershed moment in English musical performance history because I could have gone either way um, and in fact, it was that concert that decided me that I really did want to become a performing musician. It was so exciting. David Munro uh, performed on all these very strange instruments and made a beautiful sound out of them. And David Atherton talked about contemporary music and how exciting it was. So when I went to the Royal College of Music, early music really hadn't even begun there. And there were a few odd people drifting about who, who weren't very cool, who played harpsichords and occasionally got some weird looking sticks out of boxes and tried to make noises on them. So I thought, I don't think that's for me. I'll go into very contemporary music. So that's what I did as a, a pianist. I premiered lots and lots of works by today's very established composers, people like the West Coast composers like Terry Riley and Steve Reich and Oliver Nusson. So that's what I went into. And um, I then became a composer 
although I heard very different music in my head, I became a composer. So early music didn't feature in my life at all, other than that one time, wow. simply because I hadn't got enough evidence of its beauty. Mm -hmm. I liked it from a scholastic point of view, but I didn't hear how beautiful it could be until really I went to the globe. And it was going to the globe as very much a composer in the theater using very different kinds of musical repertoire. It was, it was hearing some very sophisticated players mm -hmm. being able to play these instruments brilliantly that actually fired me. And I, I just saw them not as early music instruments, but as instruments. Yep. And that was the breakthrough. And I started, I had the, the good fortune to be able to talk to these players about the instruments. And they said, do you realize there are some notes that don't play? There are some keys you can't write in. Don't use the F sharp low down on the sack butt because it's a very weak note. All those kind of idiosyncrasies and quirks that you don't find in modern instruments. So I found, I found that very, very exciting, the challenge of that and decided I'm actually going to write music for these instruments. So I really embraced it and I started to use them on shows that weren't particularly to do with period practice at all, simply because I loved the instruments. Mm -hmm. And I found in the globe space that these instruments, particularly the natural trumpet, suited the architecture of the globe space a lot more than modern trumpets. And I, I think it's to do with the amount of partials that an harmonic, the harmonic series of a natural trumpet suits the geometry of the building, which is built according to uh, sacred geometry, to divine proportion. So I found that very interesting from a scholastic point of view and a musicological point of view, and just began to find out so much more about early music in that regard from a, as, a, as a musicologist, as well as a composer. So in the end, after 20 years, I felt I got to know these instruments very well. And I almost love writing for them more than uh, instruments of my own contemporary period. Wow. Very long answer for you. No, no, it's a fantastic, and it's learning on the job. <laughs> yeah, totally learning and making stupid mistakes. I mean, I think that's the thing that a lot of composers don't have the good fortune to do because they, they're not really pushed beyond an environment that's very safe for them. You know, if you're writing for violas and pianos and things like that, um, or even orchestras, contemporary orchestras, it's not like getting to know these very strange beasts. You know, you some of them work together and some of them don't. You know, if you put crumb horns with trumpets, don't bother because you're not, <laughs> you know, there are certain families that work well together and certain families that absolutely have no place together. And that is a very odd concept in the 21st century. That's a very strange idea. So um, I found it a very beautiful idea. And I felt that these instruments became more like people. And I understood Shakespeare's world a lot more because of that, because of the music. I mean, it's fascinating. I understand the idea of, you know, especially historic instruments as having their own character and personality. I come across that a lot. But before that, you worked with the RSC as well, didn't you? How did, yeah. it go, how did you go from 
where you started, you know, to RSC and beyond? Well, um, when I was at the college, I started working on sessions for films quite early on. And a composer that I was regularly working with uh, on film music for film and television uh, is a composer called Ilona Sekac. And she was working quite regularly with the RSC. And I came in to do, oh, that's right. First of all, I went to the National Theatre to do a play of her of her music with her music in it. And it was a massively long play. It had 437 music cues, if I recall. <laughs> Five hours long, music pretty much throughout. And um, I got the real bug for performing in the theatre. I'd done quite a bit of theatre work, but the rehearsal period was so long for that piece that I really got to understand the craft of it, you know, a lot more. Because of that, I got asked to go and be an MD on a show at the, uh, at the RSC in London, which required more of a classical pianist because I had to perform in the show. So it ticked a lot of boxes. And I found that I had a facility for being a musical director as mm -hmm. well as a performer and a composer. So I began doing lots of shows. And then the RSC asked me to come and be the composer and the musical director on a, on a production of Hamlet in 1988, which then went into the main season in 1989 to 1991. Wow. And you and Mark Rylands had your own company for a while, didn't you? Well, I mean, we met at the National Theatre, actually, uh, on that very long show. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> And, was he uh, playing? Was he playing, or was he in the show? No he, was, no, he was in the show. He was a member of the company, a young actor, not not particularly noticeable, um, but I thought <laughs> he was very good. I noticed him. <laughs> um, and then he went to play to lead the season. He went on tour to play Hamlet, so that was the production of Hamlet. And then he went. We both went into the main season. I did Romeo and Juliet as well as Hamlet that year. And then we decided that what we wanted to do was to take theatre into a completely different playing environment. And so we felt that often Shakespeare had become the province of busloads of tourists that were taken to Stratford-upon-Avon and they fell asleep during the first half because they were on a kind of whistle-stop tour of all the, the sites in, in the British Isles and, you know, or they left at the interval because the bus was taking them somewhere else. And it was disheartening. And, and we just thought there has to be another way to get Shakespeare out of the theatres, out of these buildings and into a more natural environment. So we decided to do a tour of um, sacred sites and stone circles in 1991. And we formed our own company to do that. Wow, yeah. that is it's, fascinating. Well, it was crazy because it was the worst June for 500 years and it rained, it poured with rain <laughs> every day. But um, we did perform in the um, ground site of the globe. Sam Wanamaker was alive then and he loved the idea. We said, listen, we'll just perform in the building foundations. Uh, he'd run out of money. And the whole of the Globe Enterprise had ground to a halt because he'd spent everything on legal fees to keep hold of the land. And we said, well, look, we'll raise the profile. We'll perform in the foundations. Hmm. And 
and so we did and it rained and it rained and the Thames came in and we had to wash the river water out before we played uh, but people got to hear about it and um, very soon we had wonderful audiences and then we finished our tour with a, a I think 600 people a night crammed into a stone circle in Oxfordshire it became a, a destination experience Mm -hmm. uh, but it taught us a lot about communities. It taught us a lot about, because people were inside the circle with us as we played, we understood then later when we went to the Globe, how the contact with an audience is vital for these plays, that they're not ever meant to be performed into darkness, which is what was happening at the RSC. Mm -hmm. That once you can see the audience, so much of the play becomes effortless and alive in a way that the, the writer would have imagined. And the music becomes even more powerful because it replaces lighting. It gives you location, it gives you mood, it gives you time and space. And so we began to understand a lot of components simply because of that tour. As we look back, we go, that's actually was a great foundation for our work at the Globe, even though it was a bit painful performing <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> How many people were in the company or was that just very small? About, no, it wasn't that small. It was about 15. Uh, yeah, like like Shakespeare's companies, you know, it was, I think 12, 15, something like that. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That was, I guess, led to the Globe as well. And that is how your link with the Globe started? Well, what happened was I think Sam Wanamaker was very impressed and then he, he unfortunately passed away. And what was left of the globe was presided over by a kind of group of people whom Sam had collected to keep the idea alive. And they felt a new artistic director was needed to take the project onto the next phase. And because I think Mark was so excited about having played in the foundations, very excited about the whole of the globe project, they said, you, you should do it. Mm -hmm. And so he became the founding artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe. Yeah. And your role with music came kind of directly well, after? I, I kind of, yes, I, I wasn't going to be part of it. This was in 1995, actually. And it was very much his project. I had my own projects going on. But when he actually went, the site, the site started to be built in 1996 and really during that time it became clear that he needed someone who was going to bring a similar sense of vision you know to the to the enterprise and an understanding about how music worked in the theatre because they had a couple of early musicians I think Philip Pickett was one of them bringing early music expertise but they didn't know anything about how to integrate that with theatre practice. So I came along and in the opening, I did the, the prologue season in 1996, which was a month and we did Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is brilliant. And then in 1997, I was there, still wasn't called the, the director of theatre music. I was there sort of with Philip Pickett. We both did the opening season. And then I took on the mantle of director of theatre music from then on. What for you have the role of music in theatre changed from when you started to now? Or did you have a clear vision of what is the role of music in theatre? I don't know whether it has changed. I have changed. Um, 
<laughs> I've changed enormously uh, from the way I used to do it and think about it to the way I, particularly with Shakespeare, to the way I would treat a Shakespeare play now. And that's absolutely to do with my 20 year journey at the Globe, over 20 years, 22 years, that you learn so much about the need for music when it's necessary, when it's not necessary. And then you begin to realize that actually the plays tell you that Shakespeare knows very precisely when to have music and when not to have music. And if your production is full and rich and people know how to speak properly and they are fully into the characters, then you can find that you don't need music to cover things up so much or to tell the audience things quite so much that you can trust the play and some plays are more musical than others aren't they uh, for example I mean there are lots lots of music in As You Like It lots of music in Twelfth Night not so much in Richard III you know you begin to realize there's an evolution of music the way that Shakespeare's company used music changed dramatically from the 1590s through to say 1616 when um, Shakespeare went back to Stratford. And then you find new plays in the 1623 folio that don't appear before then. And a lot of them are musical too. I mean, Cymbeline, I think, appears for the first time. And it's got some great songs in it and um, great moments of spectacle. It, it's really a Jacobean piece of theater. And then you have the masks, you know, that are influenced by the indoors theater and things like that. So. Yes, I, I changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How much of this music would you plan before discussing with directors? I mean, what is the process in terms of planning, hearing or knowing, you know, because some of the music is functional as well for change of scene or anything? Well, you know, the thing is, if you're, it depends on the director. If you're really, uh, if you're at the Globe and you're doing a Shakespeare play, there is no change of scene the actor leaving the stage has a rhyming couplet and he gives, he throws the baton as it were to the actor coming on stage. So you're giving your focus to the person that's coming on stage. If there's any scene changing around you, it's only gonna be properties. It's only gonna be tables or a chair or maybe tents being put up for the night before battle or something like that. So it's so minimal that really the idea is that the story keeps moving. And um, you don't want to interrupt that with music, uh, but even until quite late, until I suppose maybe 2014, I was still underscoring a lot of Shakespeare because the director liked it. He said, oh, can we have a piece that's doing this here, a piece that's doing that here. But when I came to do my own production of Othello, I only did what Shakespeare had asked for in the play. I put no other music in. Uh, except the jig at the end, except the dance at the end. And everyone came up to me and went, there's so much music in the play. <laughs> <laughs> I so felt I that. that. That was quite funny, actually, yeah. I did see that production and it's, and you're right, you, you come out, I, I have quite a memory of the music, though you now that I think about it, I think it was only the music that is in the text and us. It's only the music that's in the text. It, it was a very pure idea of mine, I thought, right, Let's see if we can sustain this with literally the music that's in the text. And I think there was something for the bed coming on. 
Uh, well, I'm not sure. I'll have to look back now. I, I was very <laughs> sure about it. And um, I liked that. And I thought, you know, with more productions, I would do that again. I would get my kick myself out of the way as a composer. And I would just make sure that the story was moving forwards enough so that music didn't interrupt it. But coming back to your directors, a director coming from a normal theatre to the globe is not confident in that idea at all, because as you know, in normal theatres, there's a lighting rig and a lighting designer. And the whole thing that I was used to doing before with many shows before I came to the Globe was the lighting designer and I were sitting in a darkened auditorium in the tech. And he goes, how long is your next cue? And I go 33 seconds. And he goes, right, I'll make my, and I said, it does this in the middle and maybe at 16 bars, it does that. And he shaped his lighting to that. That's how it works. And a director coming into the globe does not have that vocabulary to, to fall back on. And they are very often very scared because they go, oh my goodness, how am I going to tell this story without these tricks really? And so a lot of the time you're holding their hand and you're going, I can put more music in, like light lighting, so that you will feel that we're sculpting the piece a lot more like you're used to. And that works, but I think I wouldn't be able to do that now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to work with other directors again because of that. I, I would strongly say, no, I don't think you should be doing that now. <laughs> so yes that comes with authority as well <laughs> no but it's i understand and it kind of gives probably more power to the audience because you're not really guiding how they should feel about this or that person or how they should get excited mm -hmm. here or not and they should feel sad here or not you're leaving it to the words and to their play to communicate that that's correct but i think and i think that's that's fundamentally part that's fundamentally what Shakespeare's language is about in the globe, is giving the audience the right to go through their own journey. And if you take that away from them, it's like you're telling them where to look, what to feel. They will look where they want and they will feel what they want. Mm -hmm. And that's because the stories, as you know, are so powerful. So you don't need all this contemporary vocabulary. You just don't need it uh, in a space like the globe. Obviously, if you go indoors, then you're in a completely different experience and that's valid that's like doing a whole other kind of medium really yeah you kind of mentioned about learning on the job but how much research have you and do you continue to do on the music that you're you know composing when it comes to advising music advisor as well you know for war for and whatnot how much research goes into that well you know it's i i suppose i take it for granted um how much I, I've picked up over the years, let's say, and how scary that is for a lot of directors that are working in a contemporary medium like film. Elizabethan music often has a very bad rap that they think of it as, as jolly music or as, as um, not serious music, or it's music that they don't relate to emotionally, they think. Mm -hmm. So you have a bit of a battle to get through that. And if you play 
if you play recordings, sometimes those recordings are not very good either. And they're not doing what you yourself would do. You're not, it's not because, because it's not like you can go and buy this music off the shelf that in Shakespeare's day, there was a popular song that would have then been adapted for a chest of vials at court or in the street, a shawm and a bagpipe and a tabor or a, you know, uh, cornets and sackbuts uh, for the city weights. It would be the same tune, a bit like if you had a Beatles tune and you, <laughs> you know, if, if you, I don't know if, if you ever have, but if you go to Buckingham Palace, uh, they will often have their little orchestra and they will play tunes from the Beatles or, you know, things like that. But it's a similar thing. It's, it's that um, it's a different way of thinking about composition. And so therefore you can say to the director, look, ignore what this, 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 this music is arranged for, just listen to the tune and see if you like it. And if you do, I will arrange it for the right instruments that will do what you're wanting for this scene. And that's a big leap of faith for most directors. It really is. And I was lucky on Wolf Hall because um, Peter Kosminski is a friend and he, he, this is not his cup of tea, this, this period of music at all, but he did trust me. And um, we recorded it all at Abbey Road and he was very happy with it. And in fact, the, the other composer, on the, the show, on the film, uh, used some of the, the Elizabethan tunes and rearranged them for the more modern music in the uh, series. Mm -hmm. But it's always a, it's like another country for people musically. It is, absolutely. And have you yourself managed to keep a sharp, sharp divide between your work in the early you know, period music and 20th, 21st century music? output you have? I think honestly I'm probably at the moment more interested in music scholarship and music of the renaissance maybe from 1520 to I don't know through to the, through the baroque now actually I'm next year I'm directing a baroque opera that I I've sort of dug up from nowhere. Oh wow what what is the opera? It's a, an opera called Idaspi Mm -hmm. uh, and it's by Farinelli's brother, Riccardo Broschi. And it was, we think it's not been performed since its first outing in 1730. Wow. So I found it in manuscript, it's online, but we got it um, transcribed and we've cast it and we're going to be doing it next year in Pittsburgh. So we're very excited. Finally. That sounds amazing. Yes. Yeah. And ho hopefully things go back to normal by then. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they will by October. Yeah, I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, I think I'm more interested in, in that, in finding old manuscripts. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, the work never stops. You think that, that scholarship has a sort of end point. Oh, we've discovered everything there is to, to discover about Elizabethan music, but always more manuscripts come to light or more evidence about the way instruments were used. And I find that very fascinating. For example, I mean, uh, people are doing a lot of work at the moment on the diversity of culture in Elizabethan London and finding what we know about um, John Blank, who was a, a trumpeter, 
at the court of Henry VIII. And he was uh, probably came from Morocco. He had a very dark skin. And so there's a trumpeter of color that Henry VIII adored and actually gave him money when he got married. He really favored him. Now, John Blank is not a, an example on his own. We are finding more and more that because of the break with Rome, players were coming from Venice, they were coming from other places in Europe, Spain, and there was a much more diverse presence musically in London than was hitherto thought. And that is new scholarship, mm -hmm. simply because we've looked down through history, haven't we, with a certain gaze. And now our gaze is changing. And because of that, we're seeing things differently and we're discovering, making new discoveries. That I find is much more interesting to me than sitting and writing a new string quartet. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. <laughs> Going back to your work at the Globe and beyond, um, how much autonomy did you have then at the beginning and how did it change gradually with change of artistic directors or with the change of, you know, the... Well, at the beginning, it depends what you mean by autonomy. I, I, I had a great deal of, of autonomy and that, you know, we built a pool of players that we used because we were really focusing on early music, but we also had wonderful players that played at the National, at the RSC, in concerts. You know, we had at what you, normal theatre music players and um, I wrote for those as well. So I think one year we employed 90 musicians. It was a lot, it was six musicians on every show was budgeted. So I had a lot of autonomy. They of course brought in other musicians. They said, oh, I can't make the show on the 19th, but so-and-so is really, really good and he could do it for me. And so our pool got bigger and bigger. And I think really the more I did, because the globe is so specific, when directors came in, they really relied on me to kind of produce the right set of musicians for, you know, the right, for the shows they were doing. Then later they'd come in and make suggestions. Oh, I want so-and-so on the show and this, that and the other. I think some of the early music players found it hard to give up some territory around mm -hmm. uh, the playing of early music on the shows. I think because you were an early music player, it doesn't mean that you understand the craft of theater. As you know, it's a very, very specific ability because you've, it, it's almost more about talking than it is about writing music. It's, you have to help people along the way with a vocabulary that is shared. Mm -hmm. And musicians don't do that very well. They don't know how to bridge that make a bridge between being a musician, it's a very cerebral process, and a theatre practitioner, which is a very physical and visceral place to be. They don't really know that relationship. That is something that I think I learned to do and was probably my strength, and which is why that I've become more of a Renaissance person, because that is honestly what interests me more than becoming you know, uh, just purely an academic mm -hmm. or purely a, a composer. I like to bridge these relationships. So yes, in other words, I did have a lot of autonomy. And when the 
when Mark Rylance left the Globe after 10 years and the next artistic director came in, he said, oh, please, will you stay as director of music? And I said, I don't think I can because I don't think I can go home every day going, oh, we had a lovely day at the Globe. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I think I've got other things to do, which in fact I did because I started writing for shows for Broadway in quite a different way. But he, after the first year, he really did plead with me to come back and work with him at least. And we had a wonderful, fruitful relationship as composer and director for the next 11 years. So mm -hmm. that was wonderful. And uh, I did a couple of other shows for other people, but my work was going out into the world as well. So I, I wasn't exclusively at the Globe. But I mean, from what you say, and this is quite relevant to today because, you know, we have this crisis of the government funds being cut for arts and culture and universities closing down their music departments and arts. Uh, so how was the budget? Because, you know, having 90 musicians, like you told me, that requires a lot of money. So how was money and budget kind of you know, allocated then? Well, you know, the, the Globe then, uh, things are a little different now, and I can't speak for the current regime which is trying different things. But Mark's view in those early days was that the audience needs to see the show on the actors' backs and in the sounds that they hear. And the Globe has a very fortunate um, financial position in that, although it gets no funding whatsoever from the government or any mm. sources, it manages to make quite a bit of money per show simply by people showing up. So mm -hmm. football creates the revenue. And if you don't have a lot of scenery and all of that and a big crew, you find that actually you can afford to put the actors in beautiful clothes and to pay six musicians per show. You can do the math and it, it does work. And he, he sustained that for 10 years, mm -hmm. six musicians on every single show in the globe. And in the next 10 or 11 years, Dominic did pretty much the same with five musicians on every show. Now, I think it varies and I don't really know. Uh, music is not, it's not playing a, a powerful role in today's globe. Uh, Michelle's experimenting with theater as uh, per se, as a dialogue between, a social dialogue between what's on stage and what's in what's happening in the world so it's a different approach absolutely and there's no judging of things that are different it's mm. it's a matter of taste as well right. <laughs> but did you was there any interaction between the actors and musicians because you told me that bridge you wanted to uh, cover that's very interesting yeah. yeah i i am i really encourage that and i'm sad when i see that doesn't happen as much as it could because if you help musicians to do that, they do that very well. You can't turn them into actors and you can't turn actors into musicians. They both have their roles to play. But I did actually work very hard on integrating, um, first of all, the music. So if we just think about that, in a conventional theatre, sound cues or music cues are controlled by somebody on the sound desk uh, with a light lighting system where they go, you know, before you play your music, the light is red. When it's green, you play, you know. So 
when they came to the globe, the musicians were not used to taking their own cues off the text at all. But they really started to get used to it. And up in the, the geography of the globe is very difficult for that because, you know, it's thick oak. So if you're backstage and up behind the music gallery, you're, you're like this, <laughs> door slightly open and you're, you're waiting for your cue. And then, you know, you signal the band and they play, but it keeps everyone on their toes. It keeps everyone connected to the story. And, um, we had long rehearsal periods. We had six weeks to rehearsal, which meant that musicians could come into the rehearsal. They could see what was happening. We had a chance to move them in and out of the action if that was necessary. And you saw in Othello that the musicians were on stage and they were very much part of that group in the tavern or whatever it was. I think that's when it's often at its best. I mean, if we look back at Shakespeare's company, let's take several snapshots because it was a moving target. What was happening in 1590 was not what was happening in 1610, you know, or even 1604. In, in 1590, you had a company of very skilled actors, almost like circus performers who had specialities, like the fool, who was probably a consummate musician on one or two instruments and could do stand-up and imp improvisation. But you also had boy singers from Paul's Boys, from the, the school that they, they went to, and the, the boys' companies that were part of Shakespeare's company. So although the early plays were what we call drum and trumpet plays, you had often a song. You look at Julius Caesar with the page, the song sung by the page, which mm -hmm. is obviously a boy singer with a lute probably grafted in with a very beautiful voice who could do that special moment. Later on, once you get the indoor public theatres going, like the Blackfriars, Whitefriars and all the rest of it, then everything changes and you start getting a lot more musical references in plays on the Globe stage and you feel that other musicians were probably grafted in to give a little bit more sophisticated something like the city waits perhaps who would bring in cornets and sackbuts or you know a little bit more musical material the later plays are full of it Antony and Cleopatra and the Tempest Winter's Tale are full of mu big musical moments mask like moments so it would have been unlikely that members of the company would have played for those it would have had to have been loud music outdoors had a quite a I think, was it in your um, seminar that Ross Duffin and I didn't quite agree about yes. the, yes, no, uh, I think having tried the mixed consort in the Globe balcony, even if the Globe was smaller, which it might have been, you would not have heard that sufficiently for those moments. What about dances? Um, how were they produced from conception, you know, to realisation? Again, very evolving. In 1996, we we did a kind of almost like a rap dance, um, <laughs> you know, which was based on because the the original jigs there are a few extant, aren't there? One of them is singing Simpkin, and these are little stories told by the lower life characters, probably in the play. For example, probably if, if in Winter's Tale, it would probably be the Fool and Mopsa and Dorcas, 
have their moment in the jig. So we looked at singing Simpkin and thought, well, what, what is it? So we developed a story, a little story about relationships based on a book, very current book at the time called The Rules. I don't know if you remember that book. It was a, a book about dating. And because Two Gentlemen of Verona was about these two relationships between women, we thought this is a really great way to do a jig at the end. So we, it was mainly sort of percussion based in a kind of rap form that the company did with a kind of um, sort of dance movement. And it actually was really good. I thought that worked really well. In the Globe the next year, we decided that we would go more into a dance form to end each play. So we, we looked at dances that were contemporary with Elizabethan England, like the Galliard, for example, Elizabeth's favorite dance. And one that apparently reputedly she did six times before breakfast. So it tells you how fit she was. You, I no. can't even get through one of them. No. <laughs> it's the most exhausting dance because they're all dances that are vertical. So lots of leaps, which, you know, you can't do much if you're in a corset. And men's wear, as well as female wear, was very constricting around the waist. So these vertical dances were probably the best that they could do and so the company learnt contemporary Elizabethan dances like the Volta, the Galliard and that's what they did at the end of the plays in their first 10 years and then we adapted those you have a wonderful choreographer called Sean Williams who studied um, Elizabethan historical dance with Belinda Quarry and she brought her knowledge to the globe and then extemporized on those steps so you get a, a slightly more evolving type of jig that told a little bit of the story of the play mm -hmm. as well so if you see I think you can see it on film our 12th night that we did in 2002 mm -hmm. three and again in 2013 um 12 and 13 you can see that as well as Elizabethan dance they're dancing a galliard but they're also telling the story of the play as well so I mm. thought that that was a, a wonderful evolution of the singing Simpkin type jig and also Elizabeth's favourite dances. You do refer to that production, I think, quite occasionally. Is that one of your fond memories? Well, it's a bit like that gift that keeps on giving, really, because um, it was our first real experiment. And it was our first experiment with playing Middle Temple Hall. Uh, we were asked to do the 400th anniversary of the first recorded performance of Twelfth Night, which was at Middle Temple Hall. So we created a production that was all male. In fact, Eddie Redmayne played Viola mm -hmm. um, and went on to a stellar career after that. But it was so beautiful to write for a mixed consort, which is perfect for that hall, and then to take the same music and rearrange it for Sean's and um, Sackbutt's in the Globe and notice that everything had to be played a lot faster in the Globe than it did in Middle Temple Hall. We had a long time with that production. It then went on tour in the States and then later on was revived in 2012, went to the West End, went to Broadway. So in a way, we got to know it's like a friend you know? <laughs> and 
it was a pretty iconic uh, sort of stamp of our years there that it was sort of like the um yeah the hallmark of our time mm -hmm. at globe was that production but it's was it my favorite production it's hard to say really uh, i think hamlet was a pretty wonderful production in 2000 that ended up at the Teatro uh, Olimpico in Vicenza, which was sort of, you felt, oh my God, we're playing Palladio's Theatre. This is incredible. <laughs> and it was played along the front of the stage with the perspective behind it. And for me, that was almost like coming back full circle to the beginning of theatre, really. Mm -hmm. um, beginning of Western theatre as, as we know it in the form of Shakespeare. Yeah. Were you involved in the Globe to Globe Hamlet in 2012? Oh, yes. I, I wasn't part of that. That was a touring Hamlet. That, yeah, um, Dominic, I think, was. Dominic it? did that. And the idea was literally, you know, a, a very small amount of properties and very sort of easily erectable yeah. stage stuff to take round to every company country in the world if they could. I don't think they did North Korea. <laughs> nor I don't think I, they did Iran but yeah, <laughs> yeah Iran. well I'm yeah. not sure I, I he's he has that kind of a book kind of memoir of it um it it goes quite quickly <laughs> but it yeah, is exactly, yeah <laughs> I mean I mean that that was one thing I felt in Dominic's time I mean apart from the extraordinary legacy of opening the indoor playhouse which we all learned again so much from I think his his one of his best legacies at the Globe would be the Globe to Globe season in which he invited 37 countries. Yes. Um, you know, and I think seeing all the different audiences that came because they were looking at a Nigerian company doing Shakespeare or, um, you know, people from Thailand or whatever. And seeing the way that different cultures saw Shakespeare and, and felt Shakespeare was revelatory yeah. and I, I I was sad that we couldn't do that every year I thought that would be just what the globe is should be doing mm -hmm. no you're absolutely no that was fascinating any mm. nicer stories about anything that didn't work or you know, <laughs> well you know um early on when we were still trying to get used to the globe and we weren't quite sure you know, early on, I think Mark's first show that he directed was Julius Caesar. And I think that was the one where we were, it was all male and we were trying to be really, really authentic with just about everything. And I had people running around, musicians running around backstage because there's so many trumpet calls in it. And I was being really logical about, right, you're on the ground for this one because it's the battle. So you've got to be on the same level as the actors. And then this one, you're up on the battlements. So you've got to be up high, you know, right at the top of the globe. So I had these poor trumpeters running around all over the globe. And then they were all playing at different characters as well. So they had to change clothes en route. One of them got so confused. He was late for his cue and he came on in his boxer shorts. <laughs> It's brilliant, priceless. Come <laughs> on, you don't know who I am, what I'm doing, but I've got my trumpet and I'm going to play my cue. And he did. He just stood there in his boxer shorts and played his cue. <laughs> it's brilliant. 
wonderful. Yeah, commitment. That is commitment. Commitment. <laughs> commitment. He he then later became a conductor. So <laughs> and the other yeah. one, the other the other one. I think it was in a, a Merchant of Venice. Actually, um, we had a bit at the at the beginning of the play. We had a pre-show that was all about Commedia dell'arte, a Commedia with art with masks in the yard. So all the actors were kind of going in amongst the audience with these Commedia characters. And one of the, they had, they were all signaled off by the trumpeter coming on stage and doing the first cue that the show was going to start. And then the actors all sort of came up onto the stage or disappeared out of the auditorium, got ready to then come on as, for the Merchant of Venice. And then we had an older trumpeter who was deputizing for a much younger trumpeter come on to do this cue. And we had this Commedia character jump up on stage. One of the little actresses, little, little woman with a big mask, <laughs> jumped up on stage and pinched his bottom just as he was about to play. <laughs> the trumpet went. <laughs> he was nothing like that had ever happened to him in his entire career he was a man in his 50s a brilliant trumpeter but he was just so flabbergasted he could i don't know how he played he, he was stunned but that's in the spirit of comedia spirit of comedia and that's what i mean about the, the meeting of early music and theater mm -hmm. it was it was great and um course they loved it the musicians absolutely loved all that they would never get any playfulness like that in their normal world so um yeah so that that's the, <laughs> lots more things happen but those are come no, they mind. are fantastic they're priceless but it is you know in a way i'm sad about the fact that there isn't more conviviality between music and theater in general even at the mm. level of the university and things because there's so much that we can learn from one another you know musicians and actors and uh that was a perfect thing for early musicians to be able to experience you know what exactly they should <laughs> it would have been like you know that yes say. but yes. no it's, it's it sounds so funny um so what is your own legacy you talk about dominic's legacy and mark rylands and what about oh, I think I'll have to ask other people for that. I don't know. I mean, I suppose what I've, I feel is that I stuck my neck out sometimes and made music a very vital and important part of the world of Shakespeare's Globe at the time. And, you know, we did recordings and, you know, we, we made it a very big presence in the theatre. And I'm very proud of that. And I think a lot of players still comment on that that they miss that a bit. But I feel it gave me so much more than, than I gave it. I felt that I learned amazing tools that I then took into my work elsewhere, particularly show commercial shows on Broadway. It, you know, it just taught me tools that I never realized that I would learn. And then when I was able to write a play, um, it felt very natural that I'd been part of a world for so long that was all about new writing. You know, you realize Shakespeare's a contemporary writer and there's nothing to be scared of. You know, it's a story with an audience and mm -hmm. that's all it is. And so if you write a play, just think of it in that way, that the audience are going to be part of it. And so I, I, I suppose, I think I owe it so much. I wouldn't like to say what my legacy was. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope I can give something back in in terms of 
maybe writing a book about it and trying to put my experiences and my thoughts and my research together in such a way that people can find it useful you know that sounds that sounds something to look forward to (laughs) and you'd mentioned from passant to about your own playwriting so do you feel as a musician that has an effect on how you write plays and scripts well it probably has an effect on how I write I I think probably as a composer I you know I'm I'm very interested in structure uh, in form and structure and arcs of uh, phrases and that carries it through into anything that you write whether it's words or music and you know there are many playwrights who are very good musicians I mean you know look at Noel Coward you know uh, a marvellous playwright and a marvellous composer I'd love to be as good as that so I do I've always I've always wanted to be a writer and actually when I coming back to my story that when I was 12 the thing that I really went to Cambridge that night for was to look at it with a view of going there to study English what I really wanted to do was to be a writer and I was already writing and I'd written a novel and all kinds of stuff not published but I was sort of advanced in terms of being a writer at that age and the music took over. And so later on, it was just a wonderful opportunity when Dominic said to me, I think you should write a play. You know, he'd read bits of stuff that I'd written. He said, I think you should write a play. Why don't you write a play about Farinelli? We'll put it on. And I honestly didn't think he meant it. But you know, that wonderful moment, it's almost like a a thing out of a movie that you know, you come back and you have an answer phone message from an artistic director saying, I've read it, it's wonderful, we're doing it, which is sort of great, it's great. So um, I just was very fortunate. I was fortunate to have wonderful people in it and Yestin Davis singing the role of Farinelli, everything came right about it. And um, it set me on a path of writing, which has proved very fruitful. Mm, and you're enjoying it by the sound of it. it. (laughs) Has composing for TV and film been different from composing for theatre? Yes, I mean, it's been a long time now since I've uh, written as a film composer. I did a film last in 2012, so that's a long time ago. Although since then I've done Wolf Hall and bits and pieces, um, but that's more historical music. Yes, it it is different. And it's not something that I just want to do exclusively, to be honest. It wouldn't interest me to do just that anymore. I Mm. feel I've been there, done that. It's a very precise craft. And unfortunately, I'm going to stick my neck out here and say, I don't think technology has been the friend of the modern film composer. And I say this because I enjoyed in my 20s and 30s the process of an old-fashioned process you know in the pre-digital age where you watched a piece of film and you did mathematics you you said right it takes so many seconds for that to happen I need to write a music piece of music that starts there ends there and this happens in the middle so when somebody shuts the door that's the end of your piece of music and you have to do an algorithm you have to to you know, calculate it. And then you have to write a piece of music that does it. And then you have to conduct it. So it just goes 
there at the end. That's very satisfying. But now you've got a music editor that will go, oh, you don't need to record all of the instruments together. We record them all separately. And then we put them on, you know, we, we, we assemble them and we manipulate them. And then we kind of, you know, can double it up, stretch it. And I think there's no point. I, I understand, yes. Wow, it's, just, it's just not for me. I mean, it, it's, it just is not pleasant because you think, well, that's just creating soundscapes. That's okay. Yeah, you know. that, is, that is actually the word for it. Is that <laughs> if we talk about art of sound rather than music. Anyway. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not what I mean by composition. That's not composition and there's no art in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just somebody that will just do that. And, and you can just do that at a keyboard and it, there's no sense of putting instruments and colors together. You know, t- technology will add something in it. And, and honestly, I think that at the end of the day, technology flattens the energy often of a film score so that it just becomes wallpaper. It becomes ineffective and it shouldn't be there a lot of the time. So I do feel quite strongly that I wish most of the films did not have music. in <laughs> Like the 1940s, if you, if you watch the old movies, you know, it's very precise when they use music and when they don't that I like so yeah absolutely right yes I th- I've been watching quite a lot of old movies over the lockdown and you're absolutely right so you are balancing a very multifaceted life at the moment you know yes. music and directing <laughs> and film and uh, yes and film um yeah. there is something coming up in film directing not just writing yes. well the two films Lockdown had a severe impact on one of them, which was is about Elaine de Kooning, who's known as the wife of Willem de Kooning, a very famous abstract expressionist painter. But she's has a wonderful story. And I was commissioned to write the screenplay of that, which I've done, and I was also asked to direct it. So that's ongoing. And the people that we wanted, of course, you know, during lockdown, they didn't want to leave their homes and their families and the whole business shut down. So we're just picking up the ball on that. And the other one is Farinelli and the, Ki- and the King, which is now going to be called Farinelli and the Queen in oh. its next iteration, which we hope uh, will get into under process next year. So again, that's a screenplay that I've written and, and I will be directing it. So that's very exciting, yeah. Why the change from king to queen? Well, you know, um, in the movie, the queen has a few more scenes and she's very proactive. We see her go to London and we see her meet Farinelli in London and a lot lot more happens. And I suppose honouring the actress who's going to play the role, we felt that it just shouldn't be about these two blokes, that it's actually... A relationship between three people. So Farinelli and the Queen is is what happens when the Queen finds the answer to her prayers, but then finds that it's not quite what she thought it would be. It in fact gives her more problems than it solves in a way. So it's a it's a slightly different take on the play. Yeah. You brought it up yourself. You very beautifully linked this answer to the next question, which I was <laughs> thinking of. Oh, God, it's kind of a little bit out of order. But and that was about that the recent 
move towards thinking or accusing Shakespeare of misogyny and trying to present a decolonized or an inclusive Shakespeare. And there's been quite a lot of discussions about the people thinking that it's, you know, showing what is shown on Merchant of Venice, for example, is not anti-Semitism, but on the contrary, portraying what was happening then. Mm. So that there is no need for censorship, but to just present things in a way that are informed. So what's your take about these? Because these are very hot discussions, you know, at these debates. Hot. Yeah, it's a very hot debate. And um, there are people who are much more able to answer this more fully than me, who are taking a specialised interest in Shakespeare and race. Um, and my friend, Professor uh, Farah Karim Cooper is one yeah. of those who is enormously knowledgeable. Again, because we're discovering more about Shakespeare's London, we have seen Shakespeare in a certain way. We've seen him, whoever wrote it, whatever you think, the playwright, we have seen through a certain gaze and maybe that gaze is very narrow. With regards to a play like The Merchant of Venice, because of, of our recent history, it has a different colorization to it than it might have done when Shakespeare wrote it. I think he held the mirror up to nature and he held the mirror up to the society of the day, which was misogynistic, deeply misogynistic. I mean, they believed that women didn't even have souls, that they were the property of men. So a playwright isn't necessarily writing about him or herself. They're writing about the society or the world in which they live for a certain reason. You know, plays about tyrants, the Caesar plays. What's that about? Why the need to write about Richard III in such a way that it wasn't really the real history of Richard III, but again, a play about a tyrant and a serial killer. These are all messages that are encoded in the plays that it's important for us to see that they were, it was a social revolution that was happening in the Globe Theatre and other theatres. There was a massive need to change society and eventually the Puritans shut it down and closed the theatres and that was that was that but I do believe it was a socially progressive movement mm -hmm. and that for me holding the mirror up to the nature of, of the society in which on for which Shakespeare wrote is what the plays are about. Yes some of the words in the plays are not possible now. Um, I would not use the word Ethiop in a play that I was directing. I just don't think that's possible and it carries a very unhappy and uh, irrelevant in a way. It's irrelevant to what the story is probably about because it's such a loaded word in our world. So um, yes, I, I think that answers your question. But for it me, does. it's not about the playwright being this, that and the other. We have no idea about the playwright. There's nothing mm -hmm. about this playwright. No one writes about him. Is nothing. So why focus on that? The play is the thing. And I do think that, that people write plays in order to make social movement, mm -hmm. to change things. That's why people want to write plays. Yeah, that's very, very interesting, very insightful. The last thing probably to ask is that for many of us, the time of the coronavirus and the being at home and pandemic, 
just made the outlook to things very different. You know, I think we all have gone through a kind of a grieving process in denial at the beginning. And then, you know, right now, I think we are all in kind of restarting again and mm. creating again. Have your outlook changed on what is important, what is not and life? And do you feel something has changed during this year and a bit? You know, it's probably one of those things that you'll look back on and you know, in the words of, words of Charles Dickens, it was the best of times and the worst of times, you know, the best of times because it gives many of us taking away all the people that whose lives were scarred or taken away by coronavirus, putting that unfortunately to one side, the rest of us have had an opportunity to rethink, to reevaluate and to maybe regrow some things that had to be put on the back burner because life was moving us in a different direction. And I think for some people, life will not be the same in a good way, that they will not want to travel to work five days a week when they can work at home with their families for two or three days. That we realize the planet has somewhat come back to life in a way without so much air travel, without so much you know, going on in the world. So for me, if I think about it, apart from being able to travel, which is what I love, uh, because I love touching base with different cultures and I like the stimulation of that, it's been a very valuable time of looking at my inner resources and feeling that I am moving on to this next phase in my life. What, what will it be? And I'm personally very excited about it. I think without that womb-like time of being at home and actually having that time to just fall back on yourself, I'm not sure that I would be approaching these next few years in the same way. Mm -hmm. so, I don't know about you. Did you? Did you yes. I mean, as I said, you. Um, I felt at the beginning a kind of, a, you know, we are all set on our plans. I'm particularly a very... Um, it comes with many things that I've lived through my childhood in Iran and the Iran and Iraq war and all the instabilities. So I've kind of beyond that when I managed to get myself out of the country and uh, any routine became a kind of a source of solace for me, kind of having a routine, having something that is I can plan ahead. And somehow that is actually a kind of a, you know, mental support for me to think things are set like that it's a very natural psychological reaction to instability that you want to find something that you can control so in a way the beginning was very very problematic to think I have control over nothing even mm -hmm. going out for walks you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was um, but as you say I think the the more time went on and the more you realize okay instead of thinking, when is it going to go back to normal? I have to think, what can I do to fit in now? What can I do to move forward? I move forward rather than the other thing, you know, the rest of the world. Um, it was, yeah, it made me, for one thing, interestingly, after many years, I was thinking of going back and doing a research project to do with Iran and mm -hmm. to do with uh, women musicians in Iran who were oppressed over the revolution and there are still, you know, there is, there is a still no right of doing uh, female solo voice to be heard in Iran. Wow. So it is that much, and it was much worse than that when I was a kid, I was born just at the revolution. I'm an enfant de revolution, you know? <laughs> 
And during my childhood, music at the beginning was completely banned. And then gradually just, you know, very controlled music came back. That's why it was such a dream for me to study music. And I was so, um, I, I wrote a letter to God when I was six, saying to God, why did you make me born, you know, be born in this country, but given me this, this love for, for music? It just doesn't go together. I kept that letter with me, you know, and I traveled with it. It's a good thing for a play, by the way. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful play. It's I should write play. it one day. <laughs> Amazing. That's an amazing story. Yeah. For many years, thinking of doing anything to do with Iran was so painful for me. Just Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, no, you know, this is what this is what took away 20 years out of my life. I started my life from the age of 19, but I got out and I had to fight my way step by step from Ukraine, because it was the only place I could go to, you know, that just really every step of the way. And I just found this so painful. And suddenly... You know, a few months ago, I started thinking the next thing I want to do, you know, apply for a grant to do a research. And I started thinking, why am I not doing it on Iran? Why am I not doing it on what I lived through? You know, that music was not allowed. But, you know, that regime trying to kill music and almost managing, but this little bits of, you know, like buds still remaining there. And they're starting to grow gradually from underground. My music lessons in Iran were entirely underground. You know, I wasn't allowed. I used to sneak into my piano teacher and, you know, coming out there. And so, yeah, it's just such a beautiful story and so on. And there are so many other people that live that. And I thought an oral history of that. And probably I wouldn't have arrived at this kind of a comfort of going back if I didn't have this time of quiet to reflect and think, if, you know, I shouldn't just run away from it, I shouldn't also make myself a victim, but I should embrace it. Yes, uh, it, perspective, isn't it? It's all about perspective. And it's all about that you can't really control what the universe gives you. You have to work with it. That's a big lesson that you learned in Iran, that you weren't put down by it. You left and you started a life. And But I just am such a believer in the fact that you know, it's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. And mm-hmm. uh, I've met so many people in life that have had tremendous adversity like you, but have then just been very power driven to make something as a result. And I feel like this about the whole of the lockdown and Corona period last year, that some people, not everyone is a maker of things and not everyone is a leader of things. But, but those of us that like to do both have felt in a way empowered uh, mm. by it uh, to think, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this now. And, and had that l- sort of um, lull in, in the dry, in the engine of, of your life, that the engine just sort of stayed in neutral for a bit. So you could go, where am I going to steer my craft now? Yeah. No, it's very right. You're right, absolutely. That focused everybody, didn't it? In a way, you're... people on on priorities, didn't it? Um, mm. We realised that actually we really missed meeting up for a meal with people. That's them. another thing. Yes, I took for granted being able to travel so easily. <laughs> my my folks. Plane. Like... I mean, I I went on a plane in January um, because my husband was doing a film, and I went with him. But my goodness, it was like travelling in 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 the medieval times. You know, it was uh, we were the only people on a giant plane. You know, commercial plane. We're the only people, and. When we got there, I mean, we couldn't leave our hotel room. I mean, it was 
it was really strange and you had to get your head around it after so much freedom it was not a bad thing to think yeah we've taken all this for granted that is true really we have and we shouldn't we shouldn't we should be really grateful and glad that the world we've lived in so far and what absolutely Thank you very much, Claire. You have been absolutely amazing. Thank you for all this. I could go on and talk for hours, but I should let you have the rest of your evening. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking with you. Same with me. Thank you so much. And I hope you stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. um, Thank you. Thanks. You take care. Bye-bye.